Oh, good evening. Good to see everyone here tonight. Uh, and as always, it's a pleasure to be able to share the word of God. Um, it's, a, it's a privilege and a great responsibility. So uh, hopefully you get something out of the, the, the message tonight. Uh, so as I've, I've been thinking and praying and going through the scripture, looking for a message that I, I should do, and sometimes when you do a bit of a one-off message, it could be a topical message, but I thought... This time I'll actually start doing, because I'll probably hopefully do a few more messages down the track as well, actually go through uh, the book of Malachi. So it's a short book, uh, four chapters, but there actually is a lot of meaning and a lot of truth in it. Uh, as we see, it's, it's packed full of that. And it's very relevant uh, for us. Uh, there was a message uh, for the people there in, in, that, uh, in that day. Uh, there's a message for, for us today and there's a future message as well as we go through that. Um, so we'll see how we'll get through it. We might get through a couple of chapters tonight and then we'll look at that uh, down the track as well in the near future. So we'll open in prayer and then uh, we'll have a look and see what the book of Malachi uh, is talking to us tonight. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, your word. I do thank you, thank you for each one that is here, uh, the blessing and encouragement that it is and the opportunity we do have to fellowship with other saints and uh, be encouraged by the word and sing praises to you, Lord. You are deserving of honour and praise, and thank you that we can do that tonight. I pray that the the Bible and the word would be uh, a true reflective of how you want it to be shared, Lord, um, and be interpreted correctly, Lord, and people would be challenged by that tonight. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as I was going through... Uh, Malachi, as I said, I, I believe there's definitely a truth and meaning for us uh, tonight. It always it, it speaks to the people uh, back then and the human heart, uh, and it speaks to our condition as well. Uh, we haven't changed from the people back there of Malachi. Uh, we're sinners. We're fallen. So whatever age it is, uh, we are sinners. Uh, we're depraved and needing of God's salvation and needing to be faithful and true servants and, and staying on, on task. And as we go through this, we can see that wasn't necessarily always the case of the people back there. And as I was going through that, we can see uh, there's almost six uh, discourses, uh, which is almost like a, a written communication or even like a debate uh, between God and the people of those days. And he used, uses Malachi to almost have that conversation and if you look through the chapters, the four chapters, you can see it occurring on six occasions. So tonight we'll probably only go through two. Uh, the first one uh, we will look at in a second is that the Lord loves Israel. Uh, the second one that we'll get to is that the Lord exposes faulty worship. Another part of that is the Lord deserves honour in worship. And the third point hopefully we'll get to is the Lord, he holds the priests accountable for their actions and their responsibilities that they hold. So I think as we, you can all agree, as we go through life, we, we face struggles at times. Uh, we all have different things in our life. Sometimes everyone's not aware of it, but it might be uh, things such as health issues, or we might have relationship issues, difficulties raising family, work issues, financial issues. There's many challenges that we do have in our life, in our Christian walk. Unfortunately, some of these can sometimes lead to a bit of apathy towards God uh, and also a spirit of unappreciation. 
And sometimes we might even doubt God and his character. And, and as a result, we might neglect our responsibilities to other Christians, uh, but more seriously, our responsibilities to him. And as we go through Malachi now, we can see um, this last book uh, in the Old Testament, and that before those 400 years before we see uh, John the Baptist, that we can uh, see a, a message here that he was writing and it was talking uh, to the children of Israel there, and he addressed, and, and particularly the priests of those days too. And he addressed these perennial problems and these challenges by having those six disputes. And as I said, a lot of the, the, the text as we go through is actually a direct speech. So 47 out of the 55 verses are a direct speech. Uh, and it's a, a type of teaching that's um, called da to tak or dialect speaking. Um, it's almost like a court trial in a sense where there's interrogation and questions. And the reason behind this type of method is to try and to teach or to improve the morals by teaching. And as we go through tonight, you see there's a bit of a consistent pattern in the way it's presented. Uh, the prophet will speak uh, um, from the Lord and Israel will respond, sometimes quite defiantly or dejectedly. And then the Lord will then go back uh, with their complaint with words of confrontation, uh, which sometimes we can find quite difficult, can't we? We uh, might get our back up a little bit when we're confronted with the truth of the word of God. But he also provides some comfort as well. So we're going to look at these uh, disputes tonight in a sense. But I think to get the full understanding, we, haven't, we need to get a little bit of context and meaning to the, the situation the day that we're talking about. Otherwise, we might not get the full meaning of it. So this is during the days of Nehemiah. Um, and Malachi, the name, actually just means my messenger. And we see uh, messenger mentioned a few times in Malachi, but not always Malachi, the same person. We see later on John the Baptist and Christ here referred to as my messenger. Uh, we don't know a lot about the life of the prophet here. Uh, but one thing that we'll see and we find out that Malachi is responsible for directing a very stern message of judgment to, to a people. Uh, they were people that were corrupt um, priests. Uh, they had some wicked practices. And they also had a false sense of security uh, in their privileged relationship with God. And these are some of the other challenges that Nehemiah also faced at that time. So here, the ministry here of Malachi uh, took place nearly 100 years after the decree of Cyrus in 538 and so this ended the Babylonian captivity and as a result the Jews were allowed to go back into the homeland and rebuild the temple so this was near on 80 years after Haggai and Zechariah uh, encouraged the rebuilding of the temple so what had begun in 536 BC finished in 516 BC and so what Haggai and Zechariah were saying um, they'd almost assured people that, okay, well, building the, building the temple again would result in peace and prosperity and there'd be conversion of people from other nations and they'll see the return of God's own glorious presence. Well, this wasn't necessarily the case. So the people of Malachi are probably almost thinking, well, this is a, a bit of a cruel joke. You've promised all these things uh, and it couldn't be almost further from the truth. In contrast to these promises they faced, economic difficulties there was drought and crop failure uh, they remained an insignificant territory 
no longer an independent nation and no longer ruled by the Davidic uh, king. Uh, but worst of all, though, despite the promise of God's presence, they experienced spiritual decline. So the dialogue that we'll hear about soon of, by Malachi uh, is designed to appeal uh, to try and break through that barrier of Israel's disbelief and their disappointment and discouragement and get, get them back to serving God and being on fire for God and doing the right thing that he, he so wanted um, and, to, and to serve them and worship them in spirit and truth and not have a lethargic attitude towards this. So other things they'd overcome um, as far as idolatry, uh, but now there was other things that were creeping in uh, to their life and to their worship. And the priests uh, started becoming uh, careless uh, and instituting improper sacrifice and tithing. So basically they became quite indifferent to God. And as we, we might see later on, if not tonight, later on, there was divorce and intermarriage uh, marriage with, with Gentiles as well. So we're going to look at the first disputation or discourse. As I said, it's a written or spoken communication. So the first one here, I'll read some, some scripture, starting off in Malachi, uh, chapter 1. And we'll look at the first three verses here. And it opens up and says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build... But I will throw down, and they shall call them, the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Uh, so here we look at almost an oracle, and when you talk about an oracle, it's generally a threat of warning or judgment. But do you notice in this particular case, uh, to the battered Israelites here, what the first words that God actually says? He says, I have loved you. Despite their shortcomings, uh, the, the Lord affirmed his love for them. He didn't give up on them. He doesn't do that with us either. He loves us, even at times we, we don't do as we should. We're not obedient to the word of God. Uh, but his love is never changing. He's always there for us. And this is no, no different here uh, during this day. And there's great pastoral wisdom here. Uh, knowledge of God's love comforts the downcast and encourages a deeper and more genuine repentance. So no greater words of confidence, consolation, uh, could come from these words. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 tells us that we should love him as he first loved us. He continues to love us, and that won't change. So how do you think the Israelites responded? How, how do you respond when God speaks to you and says, I love you, you're a child of God. Do we do as what Israelites here have done? They've said, oh, how have you loved us? <laughs> they had the benefit of looking back on the past blessings and what the Lord had done for them. And yet I suppose they have the nerve to almost ask the Lord, well, what have you done for us? Let me, let me mention a few things which you're probably familiar with. Uh, there was the plagues in Egypt 
uh, that they'd been taken out of, the slaying of the firstborn, they'd been saved from that. The armies of Pharaoh, they'd nearly starved, but the Lord had sent manna for them. They'd been thirsty, and he's provided water from a gushing rock. They'd been saved by the destruction of the Amalekites. All these things that they've done, but we know, <laughs> reading the Bible and th- through the history there, that uh, they became unappreciative very quickly of what God had done for them. I keep thinking, imagine if you were in this situation with your wife or your spouse and you think about all the good things she's done. She's helped you raise the kids and provide food and dinner and the washing and all these things. And imagine if she missed a night or two, where all of a sudden she goes, I'm having the night off and not cooking. And then you go, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's terrible. You go, how, how do you show your love for me? You've, you've missed a night here and you haven't provided for the family. Imagine a bit of a slap in the face. She goes, well, hang on, look back on everything I've done for you. And as a family, as a wife, all these years... Or maybe it could be in a work situation where you've had a good, a good year at work and you've got some great bonuses and it's been fantastic. You're like, oh, that's great. And the next year's a bit harder. And they go, oh, this year we're not doing any bonuses. So sorry about that. And you go, great. What have you done for me? All this time I've been slugging out this last year and you've done nothing for me. No bonuses, no rewards, no incentives. And we go, well, hang on. We're pretty short-sighted, aren't we? What about all those good things that have been done for us over the years? And I think this is like here, like all the good things that have been done uh, and they're, they're basically questioning God's love for them. I go, that's, that's a slap in the face, I would think, to the Lord. He'd be disappointed to hear that. So the glories of Israelites' history were distant memories and they were replaced by the everyday toll of survival. So the excitement of the return from the exile and the renewal of the temple worship was extinguished. And so they've also, also basically said, well, what have you done for us lately? Okay, well, maybe you love us, but what have you done for us lately? So God shows a picture here to highlight the fact of what he's done for them and the love for him. Uh, And his response is like a comparison. And often when we have comparisons in our life, people don't often like that, do they? They can arouse envy or arrogance or bitterness or jealousy or pride. But here, to illustrate his answer, Malachi calls the attention to God's uh, use of Jacob and Esau. Uh, so in reality, it's almost that it's the nation of Israel versus the Edomites because they're the, the nation from Esau. So we read, sometimes we read these verses and we think, oh, okay, particularly in verse 3, where it said, I'd hated Esau. And then so we get people that uh, jump all over that, particularly people that don't look at it in context in the background and go, oh, there we go. I knew God wasn't full of love all the time. He's got hate and anger towards people. This is not, necess- this is not the case here. Uh, it's not an out-of-control rage that we might have. We might have rage and hate built up in us and the way we portray it is not how God does that. You've got to understand that. It's different. Um, hate means something different. Um, he loves all of us. And some will almost say, well, th- these verses here, the, the, the Calvinists will also jump on these things and go, okay, well, here we go. Some are predestined to, to go to hell and some are... Some will be saved. And they'll highlight this fact, this passage is here to highlight their point, but that's not the case that's coming across. So God's patient in his response. So he uses the contrast here of Esau to exemplify his commitment to his people. So we remember about the covenant that was made with Abraham, that um, Abrahamic covenant, uh, unconditional covenant that was made. And you bless them and make them a nation and descendants. So these are the apple of his eye, these special people, and that's what he's highlighting here. 
So we hear about Esau and Jacob, the twin brothers from the line of Abraham. And you probably know the story, but I'll go through it quickly, that uh, the older twin Esau uh, was going to inherit the king, uh, inherit the family birthright. But he sold that to Jacob uh, for a bowl of stew. Uh, well, Jacob convened to obtain the blessings in this and a later episode. Uh, he at least saw the blessings as valuable. So Esau sold the birthright right away for nothing, uh, basically showing contempt for what God had gave him. And that's a bad example for us to follow in that way. So God chose Jacob, but renamed Israel. And his descendants are his people, and he rejected Esau. Uh, so throughout the prophets, God declared that the people of Edom would suffer severe judgment for their um, terrible and ongoing hostility. And, and here he does so again. So these two ways in which God expressed his hatred for Edom explain uh, what his hatred meant. God had chosen Israel as his people and he promised to build them up and do good for them. He always has. We see it now today. It's the way he looks after the children of God, that Israel, is, it's no coincidence. The covenant's been made. It's not going to be broken either. And so we talk about here uh, Esau uh, basically being rejected. So the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. And throughout history, we see that they were enemies, constant enemies for them. Um, and they would suffer judgment uh, for their terrible and ongoing hostility. So this is the two ways um, which it was elaborated on here. God chose Israel as his people and to build them up and do good for them. Um, and as I mentioned, some of those things there, the, his love can be shown in that way in which he looked after them out of Egypt and fought through them during the judges' period. Uh, the kings he gave them and even the way he sent them into exile again when they were stubbornly disobedient. But he's always kept working for good for them, to build them up and to himself. And this is stark contrast to the Edomites, to Edom, a nation that slipped into oblivion. And here we see that they were pretty sure that they would build themselves up and make a great nation and to become great. Uh, but this wasn't necessarily the case here. They've seen, they said, we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the, the ruins. And God's response to that, well, they may build, but I will tear it down. And the last gasp of the Edomite people was known um, as the Ottomans, um, a group that lived on the southern edge of Judea. And Herod the Great was one of those who, as we know, tried to kill the infant uh, Jesus by killing all infants in that town during that time. So here that's where it's trying to highlight the fact that the, Jacob here, the Israelites, were a chosen people, and that's their love for him. He's trying to demonstrate and highlight the point for them as well. Whereas the Edomites will be an uninhibited wilderness and a wasteland, uh, which, as I said, they'll try and build up, but it won't succeed, and, and it didn't. And sometimes we'll find people at odds with God when things don't turn out exactly as we hoped or planned or the way we wanted things to turn out in our life. As I said, that can stir up many emotions and sometimes it could be a sense of ingratitude for past favours and we question God's power and his providence and as I say like in this case here we question his love for us so this can creep into our lives I've been guilty of this I'm sure you've been in that particular case at times if you're honest and these, these thoughts uh, should hopefully be eradicated fairly quickly and not to be dwelled on 
Uh, I've had examples here even recently where I, I have things in my mind and I have need to get right and I've, I've got those right. But even with the business that I started uh, not so long ago, I see the praying about things and the doors opened up and I've got, I can categorically say this is what I should be doing. It was incredible how the Lord worked in that way. And I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be great. It's going to be, things are falling into place. It's going to be comfortable. It's going to be a bit of a breeze. We should be right. And then some struggles come and it gets a bit hard and you work and you toil away and it doesn't quite work out the way you think. And then little doubts of seed, seeds of doubts start creeping in your mind. And then you think, okay, well, hang on, God, you opened up these doors and these opportunities and I've gone, th- gone through with those and now it's not quite working out as I planned. And then you start questioning things, go, well, hang on, God, what, why have you allowed this for? And why am I going through this situation and why is it not going as I planned? And sometimes I don't know if you've asked this question where you go, well, God, if you really love me, then why are things the way they are? Why am I in this situation? Well, it might be in a work situation, or as I say, it could be uh, in your family life, sometimes things might happen, or your health. Where you, and you start doubting these things and you go, hang on, this, is, this shouldn't be right, God. And then you know, you're abandoning me, ab- abandoning me. But he's not. And I think a time to overcome that is... How I've done it is basically praying and reading the word, but a time of reflection as well. Thinking about all the goodness, the good things that God's done in my life. I think your salvation in particular is incredible. If we've come to know Christ, that's something first and foremost is amazing. It doesn't happen much these days. So think of that. This church family, think about the people you've got here, the blessing of that. Um, We've got more than we need as far as... um, monetary things go as well when we might compare ourselves to things overseas so rather than focusing on my things and the things I want and doubt you go well hang on Lord okay you've served me well you've done well I appreciate that I I can see your love for me so those are things that we've got to try and overcome and that's maybe the the mindset that the people there should have have taken as well rather than going well hang on things are not working out how you planned uh, and questioning his love for them but but dwell on the good things, not on the, on the negative and the hard trials that we might go through. If they'd done this, they would have seen many things about God's love for them. And there are quite a few aspects of his love for Israel. So I jotted down a few first. His love's unconditional for them. It was an act of pure grace. It wasn't depending on anything that they'd done. It was an unconditional covenant that was made with them. He loved them regardless. It was a secondly, it was a, God's love was sovereignly bestowed. He called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, made a covenant with him and confirmed it through Isaac and Jacob. Thirdly, God's love for Israel is everlasting. It's a commitment. God's not going to break that. He's not going to back down on it. Uh, people these days are good at breaking promises and commitments to, to one another. God's not going to do that. He has compassion for Israel like a mother does for their child. Fourthly, God's love for Israel is like that of a husband and wife. And fifthly, God's love for Israel is like a father's love for his son. Twice did he say that uh, he called Israel his son. So hopefully you get something from that first one there that it shows that God loves them. If you get anything out of it tonight, don't question God's love. (laughs) It won't change. He loves you. So now we look at the second discourse, and there's a few points to that, so we'll see how we go with time. Uh, But firstly, the Lord exposes faulty worship. Uh, The Lord deserves honour. And thirdly, 
The Lord holds the priests accountable for their actions. So we'll read a couple of verses here, still in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through to 8. It says here, A son honoureth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honour? And if I be a master, where is my fear? saith the Lord of hosts unto you. O priests that despise my name, and ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, The table of the Lord is contentable. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto the governor, will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. I was listening to something here about going back a little while when uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf was uh, in charge there, of, had a certain role in the USA. And someone actually asked him, what do you see as the greatest problem in America right here and now? He thought about the question for a little bit and he came back with a fairly straightforward answer. He said, it lacks integrity. As we read these verses here, I think we can say the same thing. The people, particularly the priests, they lacked integrity. They were dishonouring God's name. And to highlight this point, there's an analogy here that's used with a father-son relationship and also a master relationship too. So hopefully you should have a good relationship with your father that's one of respect and reverence. And we can't grow our relationships if these attributes aren't worked on. It's biblical for children to respect their fathers. And this is no different with our relationship with God. It should be one of reverence, adoration. should be sacrificial, obedience, one of worship. Was this what the priests were doing? No. But in their mind, they thought they were. So what did they say? How did they question when God was confronting with, with this way? They said, well, in what way have we despised your name? We, we've done everything right. But as we look down, it, wasn't, it was far from that. And cursed is he that does the work of the Lord deceitfully. Profession and practice should always be in accord. And so it can happen with us. We might say, well, how can we despise the Lord as well? Well, as Pastor sort of mentioned about it a bit this morning, he touched on that, it can be with our, even with our attitude uh, and our shoddy service. So we might come to the Lord and we go, okay, we're doing the right things. We're coming to church. Uh, we're opening the scriptures. We're going along. We're singing our hymns. What, do more, what more do you want from me, God? How can you question that I'm despising your name? Well, you can go, how's your demeanor? How's your attitude? How's your lack of interest in church? And you're willing to obey the instructions. Are they the complete opposite? And I've seen this in church. I've been guilty of this at different times in church where you just observe people in church just to see what their responses is. And it's fair to say that they're despising God's name. They're here, but they're not here. They're barely got their Bible open. Their face and their expression says, I don't want to be here. So you go, okay, you might, they might say, oh, I'm doing the right thing, I'm at church. But you're not doing what the Lord wants. You're not walk, walking with him. You're not, you're not enthusiastic and passionate about the preaching and the word of God and singing the hymns. So what's your attitude like as well there? I've been at that at times too, where maybe you're going through a bit of a hardship and a trial and you come to church and those things are plaguing your mind and you're, and you're more worried about those things and you're not really interested in, in what the word says. It's a challenge, it really is. 
And here, how are they offering faulty worship? Well, Malachi explains it. He says they're offering defiled sacrifices that were brought to the Lord. They offered polluted bread to the altar. This was contrary to the law that was given. They almost acted like the altar was there to do whatever they wanted, however they wanted. Worship had to be done in the right manner, and this was not being done. It's almost like they said, well, uh, we'll do some things for you, God. Uh, it doesn't have to be quite exact. It doesn't have to be sincere. But you know what? This should suffice. That's not right. But notice here how they kept on questioning and almost arguing with God. And sometimes when God probes our heart and we know we're being convicted of things, we can either maybe offer it, we can maybe respond in a couple of ways where we offer humility and offer forgiveness. Or sometimes, which happens quite often, we get defensive and we try to shake off the accusation and get aggressive about it rather than being humble and going, I'm going to offer repentance and I see where I've fallen, Lord. And sometimes it might happen when a Christian brother or sister might see some things in your life and they just try to get aside you and say, look, I see some things that probably aren't right. Can we try and help you as well? Maybe they might say there's areas in your life that we, we, can you work on? If someone said that to me, I'd, I would, hopefully I'd pray that I'd go, okay, look, I didn't realise that. Um, if I'm not walking in certain areas, you know, thank you for pointing that out. I'll, I'll pray with me and we'll work on that. But some people would rather get an argument, get their back up, rather than admitting their wrongdoing as well. And this is basically how the, the priests here have responded. They're going, hang on, we're doing everything you've asked, but it's far from doing it in the right way. That's not how the Lord asked, it instructed that to be done. So here, not only was the bread offering wrong, but in verse 8, they offered a blind sacrifice, which was forbidden by the law. Uh, it should have been no blemish, no scar. It was meant to be a perfect sacrifice, not a second-rate sacrifice. So they basically kept the best for themselves. Uh, they just thought, okay, we've got some things here that aren't much use, some lambs, goats that aren't much use for us. So, you know, let's, let's use those for the sacrifice. Let's not use them for ourselves. It's like rich folk trying to give away cheap things, isn't it? So aren't we, we supposed to give everything to the Lord? Our all. He doesn't want our second-rate worship. He doesn't want our second-rate thoughts, our second-rate appointments. He wants your best. Everything you can give. Are you giving everything to the Lord? Or are you guilty like these priests? Are you just giving him the leftovers, just the second-rate things in your life? Here, it's highlighted the fact here that the Israelites wouldn't even give the sacrifices to the governor. They said, oh, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't give cheap, cheap offerings or second-rate things. We wouldn't inspect goats or, or lambs and go, oh, these are no good. We, we can't give these to the governor. But hey, we'll sacrifice these to the Lord, though. What an insult. What an absolute insult it would be to God. What makes that think that's right and that's suitable to God? Hey, Exodus 23 19 it talks about the first fruits it's the best of the harvest the first fruits not just the leftovers or, or the rubbish parts of the harvest having pledged the sacrifice if god intervened certainly israelites reneged on their vows by offering blemished animals after god answered their prayers favorably so these cheats incurred god's curse for their ingratitude in the face of god's mercy and here also the israelites 
uh, may consider worship obligations as a bit of a weariness. It talks about that in verse 13. Uh, but the ward is so weary with such a worship that he implores someone to shut the doors. It's almost like he's going, I just wish there was one priest out of all you that would do the right thing. Just one, please, any of you. But verse 10 basically says, well, I should just shut the doors because none of you are doing this sacrifice and teaching in the right way. It was a faulty worship. In verse 12 through to 14, we won't read through all of those, but it was also half-hearted. They were profaning God's name by saying his service is contemptible and a weariness. And in life we can get weary. We can get weary at work, sometimes at family. We can, we can be tired and weary. Uh, even in the ministry we can be weary, but there is a difference. We shouldn't get wearied of the ministry or, or wanting to minister. It's a difference there between tired by doing what you are as opposed to getting tired of going, oh, I don't want to be involved in this anymore. Then it starts becoming a bit of a heart condition. So not only did they have the wrong attitude, but God says that they profaned his name. It's when we use the name of God, but we don't mean it. We're not enthused. So we might stand in church and sing, oh, how we love Jesus, but we're not even really thinking about the words that we're singing. And sometimes the worst profanity happens in the house of God in church. They profaned his name by half-hearted worship. Uh, it's an insult to God when we sit in church wondering when the service will be over, just almost looking at our watch going, I can't wait for this to be finished. Yet as soon as we get home, we're pretty excited to watch our football team, though. We get more enthusiastic about that and we can't wait for that. But we're in the business for the king and we need to keep the wonder in our worship. God's name shouldn't be defiled. It's to be declared. The greatest name is Jesus. Every attribute and quality of God is summed up and magnified in the name of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So there's no other name that takes precedent over the name of Jesus. We ought to honour the name of Jesus as there's salvation in his name. And for us, we're almost like the priests. We're the church of priests. The application is to us today. How should we worship him? Well, we should worship him in spirit and in truth. And as I said, we can violate that in many ways. I've already given examples there, but it can be mere lip service. Uh, substitute, substituting ent entertainment that is man-focused, and we see that is just rife. Uh, these megachurches are just all about entertainment. It's not the way that God intended worship to be in spirit and truth. Not coming to with a cleansed heart when, uh, to worship him or treat, treating uh, worship as tiresome. So true worship comes from a heart where God is treasured above all human property and praise and he aims to inspire the same God-centered passion in the hearts of the congregation as well. As leaders here, these priests should have been setting the example. We will hopefully might get to a little bit of that in chapter 2. They have responsibility of leading they should have been enthusiastic doing what was right and teaching these people the, and, and setting the example, but they weren't. They were weary in their worship. They were half-hearted and they offered unworthy sacrifices in their life. So when we bring our gift to God, if it means little to us, then it's going to mean little to him as well. Due to time, I'll be fairly quick here, but we'll just look at this last point. 
And here, the ward has a very stern instruction too about the ward holding the priests accountable for their actions. So it goes from verse 1 through to 9 uh, is this point. So I won't read everything here. But basically, uh, the Lord says in verse 1, And now, all ye priests, this commandment is for you. So prior to that, he'd been talking to you, the priests, but also the, the, the children of Israel there. But now this is a very pointed message here. I direct you straight to the priests. Because the priests, as we saw, had seen there, despise the altar. Uh, despise the ward and so it's basically this commandment is like a judgment from god they should know how to study how to apply his instructions there's no excuses in that way but they weren't doing that so here the main emphasis of application is to those who are in leadership and charged with the proclamation of enforcing god's law so it's fair to say that the priests their attitude had trickled down to the other people as well uh, but that doesn't necessarily let them off the hook. They should know and be responsible for that as well and their decisions. So sometimes we can see things in churches and we might get a bit discouraged. We go, this is not the way it should be taught and the leadership's not the way. And then we can just drop our bundle and uh, in our own life and let sin creep in as well. But we shouldn't be doing that as well. And that can happen. We can be, unfortunately, we hear of accounts of leaders and pastors and things like this around the church uh, overseas and here that have had affairs or, or done, um, gone totally against the word of God. Uh, and then, can, and as I say, a congregation can just drop their bundle and go, well, you know, what are they doing? Then what hope have I got? I'll just throw it in as well. But we need to just keep our relationship close with Him, focus on the Lord. But that's why this message is very important to those people that are in. Uh, leadership got responsibilities uh, about what the law commands. Uh, here, the, response, the spiritual health rested upon these leaders as well and the priests. Uh, they had a responsibility to teach and to show the right sacrifices in the, in the sanctuary that had to be made. No blind offerings, no blemish sacrifices. They were prevent, to prevent the people from doing this, but yet they were the ones that were basically partaking and leading that direction as well. They should have been protecting God's name and his people, but they were doing contrary uh, to that. And as I said, we see it today. We see people not leading the flock in the right way, not teaching the truth, uh, offering worship. As I say, you just only have to, I've mentioned it before, but you only have to watch five minutes of these mega churches in the USA and you go, well, this is not how the pastor should be leading the flock. This is just a, an emotionally driven, charged service. There's no truth in it. And then we see it's no surprise when trials or difficulties come in people's life, they fall apart because their faith's got no basis. It's not based on scripture. It's not a true fellowship and relationship with Christ. And their leaders are not setting the example they should be in that way. So I'll cut down this a little bit, but I'll give, try and give you a main point here. One of the key le lessons here, and you can read a bit more of this in your own time, but we do have privileges of being in positions of leadership um, and responsibility as a deacon. It's a privilege and a responsibility and there's things that I need to be making sure I'm doing the right thing and, and leading the example. Uh, you might think, okay, it's just for pastor, it's just for deacons. It's not necessarily the case. Those that lead among the children, it's a privilege as well. There are decisions that you get to make that others don't get to make and have a say. You have a certain amount of God-given power that others don't. 
so they could command respect from you too. So these are privileges. So whether it's teaching in the youth group or the young kids or Sunday school, these are, these are privileges and responsibilities. So we need to set that example. Uh, and in our own personal life as well, that's where the, really the rubber hits the road, isn't it? We can, as Pastor said this morning, we can put on a bit of a facade and look like we're doing the right things, but how's our home life, our personal life? Is it re- reflective of who we really are? So here, the priests had a responsibility. They weren't doing what they should be doing, and they questioned that. And, and God called them out through Malachi. He said, I'll corrupt their seed, and he did that through uh, ways he about putting dung on their faces, which is like the offal of the offering uh, over their face. So you can picture that. It would be a pretty disgusting uh, way of happening. But they did that. So basically meaning that they're now defiled and can't have the privileges of being high priest and serving in that way. They were excluded from that. And that's their consequences for not leading the way. They, part- they partook in the things that were wrong and they knew that. So we have responsibilities uh, within church, within our home life as well, to set the example uh, once again, it, it relates really well to what Pastor talked about this morning, just with fathers and how we lead our homes too. We have responsibilities in that way. So that's why it's important. Pray for Pastor. Pray for those ladies. He's under spiritual attack like no one else probably because um, the devil would love nothing more than to bring down the church, to bring down the people following him. Uh, and that's what he was almost doing here. There was punishment for the priests because they weren't doing as they should have been doing and been told. They knew what was right and they didn't do the right thing. And secondly, they, they questioned God about it as well. And um, that's the disappointing part too. So there's quite a bit more that maybe we'll try and pick up in another message as well. But due to time, um, I'll leave that there. But essentially, if it's three points that you can try and get from tonight's message, uh, that is God's love for you. It doesn't change. We change. Our circumstances might change. Our relationship might fluctuate. But God never does. His love is there. He expressed that for the children of Israel. It's evident today. As I say, they're protected. Uh, They should have been decimated, wiped out as a nation, but they're not. It's just, if you witness to some people about that, just point out that fact on its own, if if that's all we can get through and get people to challenge people, go, why would this country still be in existence if God hadn't made a covenant and didn't show his love towards them. And he loves you. So don't forget that. Don't dwell on the negativity and the, and, the, and the things on your life. We do go through hardships, but God will help us through those. Um, and secondly, hopefully our, our worship and our, uh, the way we come to the Lord is, is honourable to him. Um, have a relationship that is full of love and, and is close with him and you want to be enthusiastic about learning about the Word of God. You want to be here at church with the right attitude. You want to learn more about the Lord. It's, uh, in, in the day and age that we live in, we need to be walking closer more than ever with Him. Um, so pray, encourage you. that If there's things in your life that you know aren't right, do that. Get, get right with the Lord. May your worship be pleasing to Him as well. And for those that have responsibilities and leadership within church and leading your family at home, Serve that in the way that's pleasing to him. Set the example, uh, unlike the priests that we're doing in this age. Um, we have responsibilities to pass on knowledge and wisdom and, and scripture and truth from the Bible uh, to those that are following us. So I'll leave it there, but I pray that you've been challenged and encouraged by this, and I'll pick this up in, uh, in the next message that I do down the track. But let's, uh, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, the book of Malachi, Lord, is, uh, is full of truth, just like so many other scriptures. If we just search it out, there's meaning and application for us today, Lord. I pray that we would draw closer to you, um, that we wouldn't get consumed with the trials and difficulties of life uh, and sometimes the negativity that's portrayed in the world, but pray that we would reflect on the goodness of God and what you've done for us and your love for us, Lord. Help us to be obedient to your word, uh, that would be pleasing, our relationship would be pleasing to you, Lord. And that we would say, if you were to come here today, Lord, and rapture us this day, Lord, that would be seen to be doing the right thing for you, Lord. So we thank you for this church. We thank you for these people you know, that are here, Lord. It's, it's an encouragement. Thank you for Pastor. We pray for him, Lord, and, and Jill, and just uplift them, encourage them, um, keep them protected, Lord, in, in, as they lead the church too. And pray that you'd uh, in, in dismiss us with your blessing now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.